Welcome to the HAP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Kehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Paul et al. titled Impact of Maternal Dietary Folic Acid or Choline Dietary Deficiencies on Vascular Function in Young and Middle-Aged Female Mouse Offspring After Ischemic Stroke. This article was published October 30th, 2023. Joining us today are guest editor, Dr. Helen Collins, author, Dr. Nafisa Javaji, and expert, Dr. Deanne Rishu. Let's get started. Helen? Thank you, Cara, for that lovely introduction there. So I'm just going to get straight into it because I'm really excited about this body of work. So I have a question first for Deanne. Can you start by defining the clinical problem and why this is an important research area? Certainly. Thanks so much, Helen. I'm I'm very excited to be here. So as we all know, there is this wonderful concept developed by David Barker called the developmental origins of health and disease. And basically what that means is that what happens during pregnancy, whether it's your mother's diet or her stress or whatever, has a significant impact on your development in utero and therefore later on your disease risk later on in life. So specifically for this particular paper, as we all know, stroke has a significant impact on the morbidity and mortality of individuals. And there's sort of emerging research in the field, which is starting to look at the role of the maternal diet during that critical pregnancy period and whether or not that programs disease risk later on in life. So we all know that, for example, that Um, And certainly our author is going to talk more about this, but that one carbon deficiencies can lead to impacts on uh, neurodevelopment. But this is really, to best of my knowledge, one of the first times that researchers have started to look at cardiovascular development and risk of stroke in later on life. And so we already know that there are sex differences associated with ischemic stroke risk. And this is sort of looking at the underlying mechanisms associated with a poor quality diet during pregnancy. Thank you, Deanne. So the next question that I had was uh, specifically for Nafisa. Can you specifically summarize the key findings of the paper Paul et al.? Sure. Thank you for that question. So in our study, we demonstrate that a maternal dietary deficiency in one carbon metabolism, specifically folic acid or choline, results in reduced cerebral blood flow in adult offspring after an ischemic stroke. So we see this in the three-month-old offspring, but we don't see is that um, this long-term effect is present. So we don't see this reduction in cerebral blood flow at 11 months of age. These results that we uh, present in this paper in the study really point to the key role that maternal diet has in early life programming, like Deanne uh, spoke about, while emphasizing the effects that it has on fetal development as well as long-term cerebrovascular health. Wonderful. So Deanne, um, in this paper, only female animals were examined. Do you think there may be sex differences in the efficacy of this approach? Also, uh, do you think that maternal diets deficient in folic acid impact male susceptibility to stroke? And if so, do you think the developmental programming process in this instance is similar 
or differs between the sexes? Thanks so much, Helen. So as we all know, for those in the field of DOHAD, we all know that using our different experimental models, that if a mother, for example, has a high fat diet, that males and female offspring are affected differently. So what tends to happen is the male offspring tend to be more severely affected compared to the female offspring. So even coming out into later on in life, there tends to be a higher disease risk associated with the male offspring. So what I found was really interesting with this particular study is that they looked at females. And certainly we don't say that females are 100% protected. There are certain changes to the maternal diet which affect females more than males, but it tends to be the males. So I was actually looking at other papers that are in the area, and certainly this research group has demonstrated that at 10 months of age, using the same animal model, that there are differences in metabolites between males and females. They also found that there were behavioral differences between males and females. So I highly suspect that there are likely to be male differences specifically within this area. I'm not quite sure, but certainly I, I would anticipate that there should be sex-specific differences even at a later age. Thank you very much, Deanne. So, Nathisa, specifically in terms of one-carbon metabolism, would you uh, be so kind as to describe that and its overall importance for vascular health? Sure. So, one-carbon metabolism really circulates or is focused on folic acid. So we all know folate or folic acid or vitamin B9 is really important for women to take when they're pregnant or prior to becoming pregnant because it plays an important role in the closure of the neural tube, which happens you know, really early in the first trimester. One carbon metabolism plays an important role in a number of other cellular processes. So it plays an important role in nucleotide synthesis, DNA repair. It plays an important role in methylation, specifically through its role in metabolizing something called homocysteine. Homocysteine is a non-protein amino acid. So why am I bringing up homocysteine? Well, there's been a lot of clinical studies looking at homocysteine levels, and it's well associated that when levels of homocysteine are really high, there's an increased risk for an individual to develop cardiovascular disease. So things like an ischemic stroke or myocardial infarction. And so this is an association that has been well established in the clinical population. And so that's the link between one carbon metabolism and, and vascular health. So my research group has demonstrated when we use a preclinical model, so when we put animals on a deficient diet that results in these increased levels of homocysteine or reduced levels of one carbon metabolism, we see that the animals have worse stroke outcome. And then we've also shown supplementation is quite beneficial. So supplementation of one carbon metabolism metabolites, so things like folic acid, vitamin B12, choline, can help with recovery after ischemic stroke. And there's also been clinical data. There's been a couple studies out of China that have shown individuals that are hypertensive, when they take a medication called enalapril and they supplement with folic acid, they actually have a reduced risk of developing an ischemic stroke. Um, so yeah, that's a, a summary of how one carbon metabolism is linked with vascular health. I have a, just a follow-up to that, actually. So in your studies, have you thought about 
specifically looking at the heart of the dams in response to folic acid supplementation because that would, you mentioned the increased nucleotide synthesis. Um, there's been a number of studies that have shown that specifically during pregnancy that will go up. It just might be interesting to pursue in the future as well in terms of the maternal aspect. Yeah, that's a really great question. We haven't looked at the heart, but that's something that um, hopefully we can do in, in the future. Thank you for bringing that up. Also, Nafisa, because little is known about uh, maternal cardiovascular health during pregnancy, what do you think the long-term consequence of the dietary intervention on the long-term cardiovascular health of the dam, or even the impact of multiple pregnancies on the developmental programming on future generations of the offspring would be? And do you believe there are some epigenetic changes occurring as a result of the dietary intervention? Those are some great questions. So we haven't looked at the cardiovascular health of the dams. That's a great question to, you know, uh, every time you do an experiment, you know, five different questions come up. So that's definitely something that we'd like to do in the future. And then in terms of future generations of offspring, that's work that we haven't done. We've gone up to 11 months of age, but we haven't looked at the offspring of these offspring. Um, hopefully we can do that in the future. In terms of epigenetics, one carbon metabolism plays a really important role in methylation, um, the generation of methionine or SAM, which is this global methyl donor in the body. So we are, I'm actually currently writing a grant so that we can look at epigenetic changes, specifically methylation in the offspring and potentially in, in the moms. So uh, yeah, that's on the horizon. <laughs> That sounds really, really exciting. Um, I'd be interested to uh, see the outcome of that. So fingers crossed that you get the funding that you need to pursue those important studies. So my next question is for Deanne. Do you expect that any additional metabolic pathways other than one carbon metabolism are altered in response to the dietary supplementation of folic acid or choline? And might these have an impact on the changes that have been observed in the Politau paper? Thanks so much, Helen. So certainly leading on from what Nafisa has just said about how one carbon metabolism is really important for biosynthesis of DNA and proteins. And she also spoke about um, methylation. So it's highly likely that there's going to be downstream consequences of this altered folic acid or choline diet. And I was having a look in the literature and there's actually previous research which has demonstrated that a folate deficiency during gestation and lactation is really important for things such as estrogen nuclear receptor expression and also glucocorticoid receptors. And we all know how important glucocorticoid receptors are for cardiovascular development, as well as a whole host of other metabolic pathways. It would not surprise me if there's a large number of downstream pathways that are going to be altered by this. And as Nafisa said, we just need further research in the area. I definitely agree with that sentiment there. So Nafisa, um, what stage of pregnancy or the lactation period do you expect the application of the diet rich in folic acid would have the greatest impact on developmental programming and why? My focus is, is the brain. And, and we know that 
the neural tube closes within six weeks of the first trimester. And we know that folic acid, so um, a central component of one carbon metabolism, is required to help um, facilitate that. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's some mixed opinions about whether folic acid is really needed after that time point in, in pregnancy, um, after that neural tube has closed. And, you know, some people think it, sh it isn't required and some people do think it's required. But I think because of the important role that folic acid plays in the cell, I think it's needed um, during the entire pregnancy because of its role in nucleotide synthesis as in methylation. Because we see all these changes in methylation patterns in the developing fetus and that adequate levels are needed after birth um, since the brain is developing for several years. I'm very brain-centric as being a neuroscientist. Um, and so my focus is on that in the fact, you know, it's, uh, you need it for a longer period of time. And then, you know, there is this whole controversy now with over-supplementation because countries like the U.S. and Canada, we have mandatory fortification laws in place and people are actually over-supplementing with folic acid. And there's been a lot of work or some work, I guess, not a lot, but some research looking at the negative impact of too much folic acid during pregnancy and that negative impact on offspring um, health. So... I think it's a delicate uh, balance. <laughs> Everything in moderation. <laughs> I agree with that. That uh, is specifically interesting. You brought that to my attention. I didn't realize that in the US and certain populations that there was an over-supplementation issue. And I'd be interested to see the studies, the long-term effect of that on offspring health. That would be specifically interesting. So Deanne, what do you think the impact of this paper is on the field and what were you most excited by reading this? Thanks so much, Helen. Well, for me, as a DOHAD researcher, I always get excited when um, people are specifically looking at females because, yes, even though I said earlier on that males tend to be more affected, females still are affected by these um, maternal perturbations. So it was really exciting for me to see the fact that the researchers were looking at females as well. One thing that Nafisa mentioned earlier on is that a lot of people are focused on one carbon metabolism as it relates to neuronal development. And it was so exciting that in her particular paper, what she did is she had the choline deficient diet during pregnancy and lactation, and then switched the offspring onto a control diet. So anything post weaning really was a control diet, a nice healthy diet. And yet there was still deficiencies in the female. So for me, that was very exciting that there was that critical period then between pregnancy and lactation, where this was really important in our female offspring development. I couldn't agree more um, that they've been historically under studies in research and with initiatives such as that from AJP Heart, where they've promoted inclusion of sex as a biological variable in their papers, and with the increased emphasis on research during the maternal period and looking at long-term health of offspring, I think that within the next decade or so, the, the research landscape that we had previously would change dramatically. So that's also an exciting inclusion for me to see females in studies. So, uh, Nathisa, you suggested that you may want to examine the impact of changing the paternal diet in the future. 
why do you think that would be important and what do you think you would observe in those studies? So there hasn't been a lot of work done in this area. The work that has been done has shown that when there are reduced levels of folic acid in the paternal diet, it impacts the growth of embryos. So there is some preliminary data suggesting that paternal folic acid levels do impact offspring. So this area definitely requires more research. So does that mean we're suggesting potentially that our husbands and partners take a little folic acid moving forward? Or is that still something that um, is requiring more thought? I think it requires more investigation. Also, it's dependent on where you live. Like if you're in the U.S., Canada, or a country where your diet is fortified already, you probably have adequate levels. But I think um, before any making any recommendations, more research definitely needs to be done. I understand. Deanne, uh, pregnancy and developmental programming studies can be very challenging. What advice would you give to investigators getting started in this area? And are there any relevant guidelines to follow? Thanks so much, Helen, for that question. Just while we were chatting, I was thinking about our discussion and the fact that we're such a culturally diverse and geographically diverse uh, group on this podcast. And I looked up and just to highlight to you that Australia also fortifies its bread with folic acid. So there we go. We're learning something new today. So we had a wonderful collaborative study that was done quite a few years ago now, 2016. So the first author is Dick Dickinson. It's in the journal called Journal of Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. And as part of that, we brought together researchers from Australia. And in that, we investigated what's really the fundamental um, standards that we would recommend that individuals undertake when they're thinking about doing preclinical DOHAD or programming studies. And so things such as reduction in litter size and how that affects milk production and how that could potentially be impacting the outcomes that we're seeing is certainly a really important paper, I think, in this particular field. Thank you. Uh, Nafisa, in the US, there are areas of poor nutrition and high levels of obesity. Do you think this could impact the effect of supplementation and alter developmental programming? That's a great question. I think with the mandatory fortification laws in the U.S., I'm not sure if there are many populations that are deficient in folic acid. I've always really been interested in studying the interaction with obesity and one carbon metabolism. That's definitely a study we want to do in the lab. Um, So I'm not really able to comment on that yet. We know from public health data that, you know, the mandatory fortification laws that were put in place in 1998 in the U.S. have led to a drastic reduction in the number of neural tube defects in infants, but there still are, you know, some neural tube defects. So I think that does indicate that there are populations where, you know, folic acid where individuals might not be getting enough of this B vitamin. And then there's also other evidence, you know, that Choline, another component of one carbon metabolism, plays an important role also in the closure of the neural tube. And we know from Marie Cottle's work and Stephen Zizel that, you know, a lot of the U.S. population is choline deficient. Thank you. 
Deanne, where do you see the field moving towards next? And what are the important remaining questions that are required to be answered before these ideas could be pushed into human studies? Thanks so much, Helen. It's a it's a great question. Now, where to next? Well, obviously, if we identify that a deficiency during pregnancy and lactation leads to offspring outcomes, so increases the risk of disease later on in life, we have to think about how can we reverse those. A number of years ago, I used to work with a colleague, Mary Vlodek, at uh, University of Melbourne, and, and she had a different model where she had rat offspring and they were born growth-restricted. And she found that exercise in the postnatal period, so during adolescence in the rat, significantly improved things such as cardiovascular outcomes and renal outcomes. So the next step, I think, well, one of the next steps is to think about how is it that we can reverse any adverse phenotype that we do observe. Another thing that I think is really important in the context of human studies. Now, we have as wonderful models that we can use, rodent models, where we can control a large number of things. And what I mean by that is, you know, all the rodents are largely treated the same. There's a deficiency in one aspect of the diet. As you know, when it comes to humans, we eat whatever we want to eat. And, and typically there's no deficiency of one thing or overabundance of one thing. It's usually multiple things. And so the way that we start to look at this is by looking at correlations. And so it would be really interesting to have a look at moving forward if there were correlations between, you know, folic acid concentrations and cardiovascular disease risk later on in life. And then another thing might be, you know, just to throw in a little bit of genetics underlying this is whether or not, for example, that there are um, polymorphisms associated with the enzymes, for example, that metabolize these one carbon components. And if there is those polymorphisms potentially, which could be increasing the disease risk of cardiovascular disease. But as Nafisa said, oh, there's always so much more that we can be doing in this space. Thank you, Deanne. And thank you to both Deanne and Nafisa for this great discussion today that we've had here. We've not only found the important inclusion of females in studies to be not only a significant factor here in these studies, but it's important to, we have to effectively play catch up we're essentially 10 years behind in terms of female cardiovascular and vascular health. So any endeavors that we pursue, they're significantly important. Also in terms of pregnancy research, that has been notoriously understudied. So any advancements in this area are very helpful for us to not only understand what occurs in terms of maternal physiology, but also the physiology of offspring. And what I'm finding most exciting myself is the prospect of not only altering the maternal and paternal diets, because that's a significant factor, but also to uh, see where this may go next. And I've also learned something about the folic acid supplementation. Thank you again for joining me. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Zerk podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.